we have a, a mascot named Paddles, and he is a cartoon beaver who is all around telling uh, or reminding people not to touch the blossoms, climb the trees, or otherwise do things that you shouldn't do. Listen to Paddles. Welcome to the Trip Hacks DC podcast. Discover the best tips, tricks, and travel hacks for your visit to the nation's capital. And now, here's Rob and this episode's special guest. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Episode 7 of the Trip Hacks DC Podcast. If you want to check out other podcast episodes or see the show notes from this episode, you can do that over at triphacksdc.com slash podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by Trip Hacks DC Tours. March is the start of spring tour season, and the summer tour season is right around the corner. You can check out the tours we have scheduled over at triphacksdc.com slash tours. Today, I am joined by Nora Strumpf. And we are going to talk all about the National Cherry Blossom Festival in Washington, D.C. The Cherry Blossom Festival welcomes over a million visitors to the nation's capital each year to mark the start of spring here and across the country. And Nora has been with the organization since 2015. She is currently the communications coordinator and a Washington, D.C. area native. So, Nora, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks so much for having me. And even though you've been formally working for the Cherry Blossom Festival for a few years, since you are a Washington, D.C. local, is it fair to say that you have been to Cherry Blossom festivals for quite a while? I sure have. I used to come with my family when I was a kid, and throughout college, I came with my friends and then started working here, and now I'm super involved with the process, and it's a lot of fun. So the Cherry Blossom Festival is the name of the organization that you work for. I think a lot of people don't realize that the festival is not just a spontaneous event that every spring just pops up. There's a lot of work, a lot of planning that goes into it. And so can you tell us about how many people work for the organization? How many colleagues do you have? And what does it take to pull this off? The National Cherry Blossom Festival has 13 full-time staff members we that's exactly like what you said we work full year round to plan the national cherry blossom festival of course we bring in some additional support as we get closer to the spring but we do have a core staff of 13 um i'm glad you say that it it seems like it just all comes together and in which case i suppose we're making our job look seamless but there's certainly a lot of planning that goes into it we're always thinking even a few years in advance not just the spring coming up but two, three years out into the future, what's that festival going to look like? And how are these events going to shape up? So it's it's definitely a, a big undertaking. And even though the cherry blossoms are sort of a Washington, D.C. staple, I think a lot of people, when they think of the city, they think of the cherry blossoms. This isn't something that goes back to the George Washington days. This is a somewhat recent phenomenon, I think a little more than 100 years because in 1912, that was the year that First Lady Helen Taft and the wife of the Japanese ambassador actually had the first ceremony. I don't know if you consider that the first festival, but that was the first time the cherry blossoms sort of were seen in the city. Right. So this is this is a longstanding D.C. tradition, like you said, dates back to 1912 when we first received the cherry blossom trees. We had our centennial year, centennial year of the festival itself in 2012. And since then, we've really been expanding and growing and finding new ways to make our events fresh and exciting each year. So we're now a four week long festival each year that celebrates this gift that has such a long history behind it. And I think it was in 2000, so a little under 20 years ago, or maybe more, depending on when you're listening to this podcast in the future, that the Cherry Blossom Festival switched from being exclusively a volunteer operation to being the full-blown nonprofit organization that you are now. That's correct. And so next year, we'll actually be celebrating um, 
20 years of that. So we definitely started off a lot smaller, all volunteer based, as you said, and we've just grown enormously since then. And that's not to say that volunteers aren't still a pretty major component of the festival. You have volunteers to this day. We do. We have over a thousand volunteers that make the festival possible. We absolutely could not do what we do without the help of volunteers. I would encourage everyone to consider volunteering for us. It's it's an amazing way to kind of get that behind the scenes look to meet other people in D.C. Or even if you're coming from out of town, you can sign up to be a volunteer and really you know, get that hands-on experience at any of our events. Um, and it's it's really a, a lot of fun. So I, I didn't quite realize how many volunteers there are. I haven't really considered it for myself. I sort of should admit because I'm always out giving tours during the Cherry Blossom Month. That's one of my busiest months of the entire year for tours. But maybe we'll talk a little bit later about how someone can get involved. But regardless, I'm going to leave some information in the show notes for anyone who wants to volunteer so that they can check that out and perhaps be a part of the festival in a way that's more than just being a visitor. So let's talk a little bit about for people who are going to visit Washington, D.C. in the spring. They want to see the cherry blossoms. And the question that I get asked probably more than any other is, when are they going to bloom? What date? When should I come? It is on everyone's mind. When are the cherry blossoms going to bloom? Um, unfortunately, as I'm sure you know, since you get asked it all the time too, we just don't have that answer far in advance. I wish we did. The blossoming period is really dependent on the weather and a lot of environmental factors. Um, ideally, you know, this is why we've created a festival that's four weeks long. So, you know, ideally the blossoms will come out within that range of time. But, you know, in general, the blooming period um, can last for 14 days, but there's really just a lot that's left up to Mother Nature when it comes to the blossoming of the trees. So the festival usually starts roughly around the third week in March, and then it ends roughly in mid-April. So that's about four weeks. Correct. So the start date of the festival is always corresponding with the first day of spring, which is March 20th. Um, and then from there, it's four weeks long full of events every day. Okay, I guess that's a piece of symbolism that I never really picked <laughs> up on before. But that makes total sense. Of course, the Cherry Blossom Festival is a celebration of spring. So what better day to start than on the actual first day of spring? So there is on the National Cherry Blossom website, a page called the Bloom Watch. And people who are coming or planning to come and they want to zero, zero in on exactly when they're going to be in bloom should definitely bookmark that page. It's one of my top bookmarks uh, because that will tell you when they are predicted to bloom. And like you said, it has a lot to do with weather. And I am not a meteorologist or weather expert by any means, but I think the very simple explanation is that the, the warmer the winter, the earlier the bloom, the colder the winter, the later the bloom. Would you say that that's somewhat accurate? Honestly, I don't even know if I'm in the position to answer that question. It has varied so much. Really, the those that we turn to within the festival organization is the National Park Service. And we work closely with their horticulturalists to, you know, determine um, some of those patterns and look at the data and look at the weather. Um, if it's been a warmer winter or sometimes it can be a warm winter and then all of a sudden right at the end you get snow. So it can be unpredictable sometimes. But as we get closer, we work with them, with the Park Service and try to get a better sense as to when we think it will be peak bloom. I think what you just described is 2018 in a nutshell. We had a really uh, cold winter and then it got warm and it looked like, oh my goodness, it's gonna, they're gonna come out really early. They're gonna come out before the 
festivals even officially started. And then we got a few weeks of cold weather and it wound up pushing them back, pushing them back, pushing them back until it didn't actually happen until quite a bit after the initial prediction. So even when you get that initial prediction by the Park Service, it's not set in stone. And you should definitely keep checking up on it, especially if you're trying to plan for the peak bloom. Yeah, I would say definitely keep your eye on that Bloom Watch page. As you mentioned, of course, you know, checking our social media. We try to make sure that we're keeping everyone updated. We know they want to know, you know, when are they going to see the blossoms in all their glory. But I'd also say, you know, if you're really planning out a trip for the festival, check out our events first and foremost, and then, um, and then look into the blossoms. Don't just try to plan your whole trip around that because, as I said, it can fluctuate. But the idea is that there's something fun to do every single weekend of the festival. So really look at what sparks your interest in terms of the events and checking out the city. And ideally, the Blossoms will cooperate. Okay, I think that is actually actually excellent advice. And I think that that's also a good way that you can keep your expectations in check. Uh, because if you do come a little too early or a little too late, you can still have a blast. And maybe you don't see the peak bloom, but you'll definitely see something because we have some uh, varieties of cherries that are early bloomers and some that are later bloomers. But the term that I've kind of been throwing around loosely, peak bloom, that actually has a pretty specific meaning. So can you tell us about what it means when someone says peak bloom? So peak bloom is actually defined as the day when 70% of the blossoms on those Yoshino cherry trees at the Tidal Basin are open. So that being said, that means 70% of the blossoms are open. Once 20% of the blossoms are open, they're still beautiful to look at. So I'd also make sure you're not holding off just for peak bloom. There's a lot of trees down there. So once you're down there and they're starting to bloom, it's... It's a sight to see. And even after peak bloom, you might have a good amount of, of days you can go down and really catch something, you know, special, even if it's not the specific peak bloom dates. Great. So you mentioned the the events as being sort of the fun things you can do and maybe worth planning your trip around. And I think there are at least five what what you call signature events as part of the festival. And then there are countless other smaller events. Um, So I kind of want to run through the signature events and just explain what they are and maybe help people decide if they're, you know, going to come during the cherry blossom month, but maybe they only have one weekend or maybe they only have five days, which one they want to try to shoot for because it'll be uh, best for them and for their family. So the first one is called the pink tie party. And of course, pink is the official color of the cherry blossom festival because of the blossoms themselves. So this is like, a black tie party, but everyone, I suppose, wears a pink tie instead? Yes, you you nailed it. Um, lots of pink going on at the pink tie party, as the name implies. Um, we really consider that the kickoff to spring in Washington, and it's just such a fun way to mark the end of winter. And, you know, think of it as like the official start to cherry blossom season in D.C. Um, it's held at the Ronald Reagan Building. Uh, it's a very stylish event. A lot of trendsetters um, come out. There's awesome food from D.C. restaurants. And what's special about this event is it's really our main fundraiser. So a lot of people don't realize that this organization is actually a nonprofit. Um, and a lot of our signature events are free and open to the public. So this pink tie party is really a way for us to make sure we're able to sustain that and really continue celebrating this gift every single year. Um, but it's just a lot of fun. It's that fun nightlife event. You know, if you love music and great food and an open bar and really 
dressing up in your best springtime, you know, pink cocktail attire. Um, this is like your first chance to kind of put that winter coat away and step out in something a little bit more fun springtime. So definitely, definitely a fun way to kick off the festival every year. So this is an event that's not free, which it is wonderful that so many things in Washington, D.C., including Cherry Blossom events are free, but not everything is. And this is one that you're going to a big party, but it's one that, you know, you're paying big party prices for. So I think the the tickets start at around $100 and go up to, you know, if you want to be a premium sponsor, you could pay thousands of dollars for your ticket. Is that right? That's right. So we offer various um, ticketing packages. So I would just say check out our website. Um, and, you know, learn more about this event, um, check out some of those photos because it's so many fun photo opportunities at this event. So, um, there are a few options for tickets and definitely a great way to support the festival and make sure that this is something we can keep doing every year. And this isn't, you know, when you buy your ticket, you're not just making a donation. You're getting something in return. You're getting this party, but it also includes the food and it includes an open bar. It does. And it also includes a really spectacular silent auction, some great items in that, some fun trips, um, you know, all kinds of, of interesting things that you can bid on in the auction. And that's another great way for us to make sure that we're presenting these free, fun events that everybody can come and enjoy. So the, the Pink Tie Party, we consider the kickoff to the festival, the kickoff to spring, the big celebration of the fact that winter is finally over. And then after the party, we have the official opening ceremony, which usually takes place the first Saturday after the party. And that's sort of an official event where you can come and it's an indoor activity and you can you know have your first chance to see performers who come from the U.S. and from Japan doing different types of performances. That's right. So this is a seated show, um, typically at the Warner Theater, very historic theater in D.C. Um, what's great about this is this is really that event that celebrates that historic friendship between the U.S. and Japan, you know, commemorating that gift of trees and making sure we're really honoring that gift and what it means to us. Um so typically this event will consist of several different performances, like you said, from Japan and from the United States, um, you know, both those traditional and contemporary performances, not all music, but a lot of great music. Um, but sometimes we'll have things like light shows or, you know, really amazing jugglers. So there's all kinds of different entertainment that you can enjoy at the opening ceremony. So since it's a seated show, how does that work as far as tickets go? Are they first come, first serve? I think there are a few premium seats that you can buy. Is that right? So tickets for the opening ceremony are free. There's a small um, processing fee with that. Um, but we also um, have an option where you can make a small donation to the festival and you can get some premium seating. But otherwise... Yes, the tickets are available online. They do tend to sell out every year. So if it's an event you're interested in, I would say um, try to try to get your spot early. Don't wait for sure. But it's pretty amazing that we are able to produce an event of such a high caliber of talent while keeping, you know, the price of admission so low. I agree. I think if you go to the Kennedy Center and you see a 
performance, whether it's music or dance, you're going to be paying a lot more than free or even a lot more than what the premium seating for this performance is. So if you're into it, if this is a Saturday evening activity that you think you want to do, I do also highly recommend looking into it and getting your ticket as soon as you possibly can. So the next uh, signature event that I want to run through is actually my personal favorite. It is the Kite Festival, and I go to this every year. I love going. The one year in recent memory when it got rained out, I was so bummed uh, because I really wanted to go. It didn't get rained out. It got postponed, I should say. Um, but the Kite Festival, can you tell us about what happens then? Yeah, so I'm so glad to hear that's that's your favorite event. It's one of my favorites, too. Um Definitely a long-standing D.C. tradition. The Kite Festival has been going on for over 50 years down on the mall. Um, it's held on the grounds of the Washington Monument, so it's got that really iconic backdrop. Um, and really, when you get there, it's just, you know, thousands of kites, really, as far as your eye can see down on the National Mall. It's really a spectacular sight to see. I would even say photos of this event do not do it justice. I mean, it is... It's pretty incredible when you get down there and you just see all these different, you know, colorful kites um, in the sky. But not only can you come in, you know, fly your own kite or, you know, purchase a kite at the event. Um, we have a number of demonstrations that go on. We have competitions. We even bring in, you know, these really, really impressive kite flyers from around the country. Um, a lot of people don't realize that, you know, kite flying, there are expert kite flyers and, you know, this is really their passion and they, you know, can do kite ballets set to music in the sky and they're, they're just so incredible. Um, lots of activities you can, you can take part in. We've got, you know, make your own kite. We, there's arts and crafts. So even if you're bringing a little kid that, you know, might lose interest after a couple minutes as kids so often do there is there's a lot to do um to spend the day on the mall at the kite festival i would agree that the kite festival is one of if not the most kid-friendly events in the festival and you know just to see the joy on a kid's face when they a lot for a lot of them it might be the first time they've ever flown a kite and just to see them doing it and experiencing that is really cool but i personally like to see the professionals i mean I am a total amateur when it comes to flying a kite, and it's not really my thing, but to see the performances that they put on, especially like the kite battles and the different synchronized kite, I think the synchronized performances are my favorite, is just absolutely amazing. Yeah, it's so impressive. I mean, I can fly a kite decently, but then you look at those at those people that are, you know, synchronizing it to music, and there's multiple kites going on. They've got these really elaborate, elaborate kites, and it's just, you know, huge, you know, you know, groups of people watching this just in awe, especially during some of these battles where you try to knock a kite out of the sky and you can hear everyone just like, ah, get out. But it's a lot of fun. So you mentioned earlier that if you don't already own a kite, you can buy one there. What should someone who wants to do that, who should they look for and where should they go if they want to buy a kite at the so festival? So you'll, you'll see when you get down there, there are several tents with signage on them. Um, and that's where you can purchase one of our kites. Each year, the kite reflects the artwork of the year um, of the festival. So it has become a bit of a collector's item in that every year has a different design on it. Yeah. And if you want to see this year's artwork, that is on the Cherry Blossom Festival website. So I'll make sure to link in the show notes to that so that you can see what to expect in case you want to pick up a souvenir kite when you come down for the festival. So the next signature event that I want to call out is called Petal Palooza. That's a bit of a handful, so I wanted to make sure I said it slowly. Uh, 
Petalpalooza is a big outdoor festival. It takes place at the Wharf, which has come up several times already on this podcast. It is the brand new development on the Washington Channel in Southwest DC. And Petalpalooza features music. It features special daytime activities. And then my personal favorite is the nighttime fireworks display. Yeah. So Petalpalooza, I mean, you, you really nailed it. It's a great event for all ages. It's all day. So, you know, fireworks at night, but plenty to do in the day. Uh, multiple stages of live music, a beer garden, kids activities. So really something for everyone to do there. And of course, you know, the setting at the wharf is just so much fun. Tons of great restaurants down there now. Um, really a great way to spend the day on the waterfront. So before the wharf opened, the wharf actually only opened in 2017. Was it called Petalpalooza before or did it have a different name? So this event was originally called the Southwest Waterfront Fireworks Festival. And then as the landscape down there changed and as the wharf was developed, we uh, changed the name of this event to kind of reflect, you know, all the changes that were going on down there. Although really the fireworks, many will consider that to just be such a tradition now. I think that's why I thought of it the way that I did was because, you know, thinking back all these years before the wharf was the wharf, we thought of it just as the fire, you know, the cherry blossom firework display. And so it's great that you've been able to take advantage of the new development and to add additional programming onto it. I think that's really cool. Sure. And, you know, this is an event where we really um, include that community that lives down there. A lot of folks that live in Southwest have been coming to this event for years and years and years. So we wanted to make sure that, you know, as new exciting things go on down there, that we're also, you know, keeping that tradition alive and making sure that our friends down in Southwest are, you know, really a part of the fun. And I think if you are a fan of fireworks, you should definitely go because surprisingly, we don't do a lot of fireworks in Washington, D.C. We have Independence Day, of course. That's the big one. And then we also do one at Christmas time, also at the Wharf, and one during the Cherry Blossom Festival. But there aren't a lot of opportunities to see fireworks in town. So if you like them, I think this is a great time to go. Yeah, it's a bit of a rare sighting in D.C., but um, these are, I will say, in my own opinion, some pretty impressive fireworks. They're set to music, so it's a it's a good show, especially if you love fireworks and you feel like you don't get enough of it throughout the year. And is it correct that the fireworks, you shoot them off from a a boat or a barge that's on the Washington Channel, so it's actually on the water? That's right. So you can get a a beautiful view from the wharf. That's where the main festival is. But if you go to the other side of the channel to East Potomac Park or Haynes Point, as it's sometimes called, you can get a pretty sweet view from over there. You might not be able to hear the music quite as well, but maybe a little less crowded and maybe a little bit more unique view. Sure. So uh, the last... Uh, signature event is probably the the signature of all the signature events, and that is the National Cherry Blossom Parade. So this is just an absolutely massive parade. There's balloons, there's floats, there's marching bands, there's entertainers. Um, you know, it might not be as well known as the Macy's Thanksgiving Parade, but it's, you know, for D.C., it's uh, our big parade. The National Cherry Blossom Festival Parade is definitely one of D.C.'s uh, larger spectator events. Um, it happens right along... I- Constitution Avenue, which is, you know, a very iconic place to be. It's got an excellent backdrop of, you know, monuments that many people may have seen on TV or, you know, um, but when they come down, they can actually be right up close. Um, so like you said, a lot of very intricate floats, um, gigantic helium balloons, um, 
we incorporate celebrities each year and, you know, get some fresh faces in there. Um, a lot of marching bands, not only from DC, but from across the country. Um, very exciting for some of the bands that get to, you know, travel in and be a part of it. So a, a good mix of local DC, um, involvement, but also on a national scale as well, which really makes it such a fun, energetic morning to be a part of the parade. So what kind of celebrities have participated in the past? Who's the most prominent celebrity that you've ever gotten to see at the at the parade? Sure. So over the past couple of years, uh, we were lucky to have Carrie Annie Naba as the Grand Marshal of our parade. She's from Dancing with the Stars. And we had a lot of fun with her. You know, there's a lot of dance groups that come from all over to be a part of this. So for them to be with Carrie Annie Naba and just with her background in dance and Dancing with the Stars, it was so fun to see how excited they, they were to get to meet her. And you said that the, the parade is on Constitution Avenue. And so if you want to go, you can line up on Constitution Avenue. It's free to attend. There are grandstand, grandstand uh, seats or bleachers, I guess. And you can pay to get a ticket to sit in those if you want. Right. So it's $20 to sit in the grandstand bleacher seating. Um Really good views of the parade from those seats. If you're interested in also sitting in the telecast area, um, we do broadcast this parade and it's syndicated nationally throughout, you know, the months following the parade. If you want to sit right in that area where they're actually filming it, that is an option to get a ticket uh, for that area. But as I said, they start at $20. Definitely worth the investment if you feel like you might not want to stand or if you want to just ensure you've got a great viewpoint of the parade because it can, you know, it can get busy. Um, but otherwise, you know, standing anywhere along the parade route is completely free. Yeah. And one thing that I like to do, and maybe this is a little trip hack I can throw out for the podcast listeners, is I actually like to go to the National Mall to see all the performers warming up because they warm up near the museums like the Natural History Museum and the Air and Space Museum when they're waiting, you know, in line to go on the parade route. So if you don't want to, you know, stand and watch a parade in the traditional form, you can just kind of walk around and see all the different performers and see who's there. And it's kind of a cool different experience. Yeah, that's a great point. <clears throat> and you can also catch um, those balloons being inflated, which is you know, quite an activity. I mean, these balloons are massive, so it can be pretty fun watching those kind of come to life. Totally. So we've run through all the signature events, but you mentioned earlier that the signature events are only a small handful of all of the events. So the signature events are mostly on Saturdays, but if you come, you know, Monday through Friday, it's not like you're going to be sitting around with nothing to do. So can you tell us about some of the less signature events or I'm not quite sure what yes, the word is? So the National Cherry Blossom Festival actually has more than 50 events as part of our four week long calendar. So it's not just those signature events. We also work with a number of different partners throughout the region to produce um other programming that goes on. One of those is Sakura Matsuri. A lot of people look forward to that every year. It's typically held right after the parade. It's, you know, considered to be the the largest one-day celebration of Japanese culture in the U.S. So, you know, just tons and tons of programming relating back to Japan and 
um, performances and food. So really a fun celebration of Japanese culture at, at Sakura Matsuri. Yeah, I've attended that. I actually attended it most recently. Um, it had to move locations temporarily, I think. Is it back to its original location on Pennsylvania Avenue? It is. It's on Pennsylvania Avenue. So if for a few years there, for some logistical reasons, it had to move to uh, the area near Nationals Ballpark, but it's back, at least for the 2019 festival, over to its location on Pennsylvania Avenue. So if you're over at the parade or you're down by the National Mall that day, it's right over there and very easy to hop over and check it out. So what other helpful tips would you have for people who are coming to visit the Cherry Blossom Festival? I know we've talked all about events and such, but you know, just some, some practical things that people might want to know, maybe from your own many experiences doing this as an official Cherry Blossom employee or just as a fan of the cherry trees. I would say, first of all, if you're not someone that likes crowds, I would say definitely don't be intimidated by that. Be patient when it comes down to getting there if you want to really see the blossoms on peak bloom. But like I said, you know, plan your trip based around the events that you want to see and then make make the tidal basin a stop. Um, while you're in town, but I, I would, as I said before, you know, don't just wait for a peak bloom. I would say really get involved with the festival and see where else, um, you can be a part of it because we're, we're really throughout the whole city. I'd also say, you know, in terms of transportation, I'd, I'd recommend taking Metro. Um, if you go on our website, you, you'll see, you know, which Metro stops correspond to which events and really how you can get around and plan your trip. I highly agree. The, uh, I have never seen more traffic and road rage than on the weekend of peak bloom around the National Mall. So the last place you want to possibly be is in a car trying to get down Independence Avenue or Constitution Avenue. Um, so when, when you talk about the crowds, I think from my experience as a tour guide, the heaviest crowds are on the Tidal Basin. And that's the area that uh, kind of includes the Jefferson Memorial, the Franklin Delano Roosevelt Memorial, and the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial. And that's only a small part of the whole Cherry Blossom Festival. So there's also the Washington Monument, which has a large concentration of cherry trees. And there's my personal favorite, which is East Potomac Park, uh, or Haynes Point. And I highly recommend doing a bike ride uh, around um, the Cherry Blossom Festival because there's so many trees over there. And I didn't even realize this until I became a tour guide and was asked to lead a Cherry Blossom bike tour. And the route was basically a big loop around the park. And I was absolutely shocked at how amazing it was and I'd never known about it before. Yeah, Haynes Point is definitely a great, you know, alternative to still get a chance to see some great blossoms in the spring. And, you know, when it comes to to a tour, an official tour, we've got a lot of tour partners that you can check out. Um, Definitely a great way to, you know, find your way around. And like you said, Doing one by bike can be a lot of fun. So you don't have to just, you know, show up and find your own way through. You can really take a guided tour and really, you know, learn more about the history or, you know, go on a bike or go on a boat. And there's there's a lot of ways to see the blossoms. And I think there's actually a bus that goes, I think it picks up at the Jefferson Memorial and it will take you around to Haynes Point for people who don't feel, you know, physically up for a bike ride or maybe just aren't interested in it for one reason or another. Uh, Another tip that I would give is to be kind to the trees and to be respectful of the fact that uh, they are a very precious resource for us. We have a a mascot named Paddles, and he is a cartoon beaver who is all around telling uh, or reminding people not to touch the blossoms, climb the trees, or otherwise do things that you shouldn't do. Yes, definitely do not pick 
the blossoms off the trees. I know it's tempting. You want to put it in your hair. You want to take that selfie in front of the tree. You want them um, for yourself. But, you know, when you pick the blossoms off the tree, you're you're killing it. And it it's it's not going to grow back. So it, this is something that you cherish. I would say definitely respect the trees and, and the history that they have. It, it's a lot of maintenance that goes into protecting these trees. And it's really such a special gift that we're so lucky to have here in D.C. So definitely, you know, playing your part and making sure that they can thrive and keep coming back every year. Yeah, so listen to paddles and don't... Uh... Listen to paddles. Yeah, I found an article from the Washington Post from years ago that talked about the park ranger who invented paddles and it talked about how before that they had a really hard time the rangers basically had to go up to every single person and say hey stop doing that and you know people still do it unfortunately but paddles has helped a lot and you know spreading word like we're doing right now to make sure people are respectful of the wonderful things that we have here yes we're very thankful for paddles the beaver We've talked pretty much this entire episode about the Cherry Blossom Festival on the Tidal Basin and on the National Mall. But one thing I I just want to also mention is that the cherry trees are all over the city and they are not just in the very limited, you know, place where the festival is happening. There are um, trees all over the place. And so I kind of want to ask you, uh, in an unofficial capacity, just as local resident Nora, what is your favorite place to go see uh, some of the cherry trees that are off of the National Mall in the Tidal Basin? I think some of the best ones are when you're just driving along the road and, and you catch them out the corner of your eye. Maybe a grove of trees you didn't realize was there. Um, and, you know, it's so special because it is so fleeting and it's so ephemeral. You can't go and, and see something quite so beautiful all the time. So really just making sure that you're appreciating it and enjoying the moment when you do see when you do see a cherry tree, wherever it may be. This this definitely happened to me many years ago. I was riding my bike around Capitol Hill, and about four blocks east of the Capitol is a small square park called Stanton Park, and it was absolutely lit up in cherry blossoms, and it was amazing. And I had no idea that there were such a big concentration of them over there. So like you said, the ones sometimes the best ones are the ones that you just happen across or the ones that you accidentally come across. I know that the Washington Nationals actually planted some cherry trees inside the ballpark so that, you know, spring is the beginning of baseball season. And if you're coming to a game during the time that they're in bloom, you can actually see them from inside the ballpark, which I think is really cool. Right. And we actually do have an event with the Nationals called Blossoms in Baseball. So um, definitely, you know, check online for the date of that event. But that's that's a lot of fun. You know, they really blossom up Nats Park for that game. Yeah, I am a big baseball fan, so I uh, appreciate that tip. So is there anything else that you think people ought to know before they, uh, you know, start planning out their dates and picking uh, where they want to stay for the festival? You know, I would say, you know, start planning your trip early. Um, check out, you know, everything we have to offer. Don't limit yourself. Um, you know, be prepared. Um, I'd say... Make sure you've got your camera charged up, um, you're ready for a day to be outside, and really just enjoy it while it's here because it's, you know, it's really a celebration of spring, and it's something we miss when it's gone, but when it's here, it really feels like it's the time to be in Washington. And if you're listening to this in 2019 and you feel like, oh, no, I forgot to request days off of work or it's too late, there's always 2020 or there's always 2021. There's always going to be another festival and another spring. So definitely a chance to come. Yes. Well, Nora, I really want to thank you for coming on the podcast, sharing all of your knowledge about the Cherry Blossom Festival as an insider with uh, everything that you've done for the organization. So 
thank you very much for for coming on. Thank you, and I'll see you this spring at the festival. Thanks for listening to the Trip Hacks DC podcast. To see the show notes from today's episode, get additional resources for planning your trip, or to book a Trip Hacks DC guided tour, visit triphacksdc.com.